I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. An individual said that. I like your Christ, not the prayer breakfast. This was said years ago. But I don't like your Christians. Mahatma Gandhi, who had been studying in university over in London, made that statement. As he had been with other followers of Jesus, and he had studied the teachings of Jesus and was impacted by the teachings of Jesus. And he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Well, there is a similar theme that's running today in our world. When you, when you move in and about the places you work, you may not even realize this. But back in 1996, a Barna study concluded that 85% of non-Christian Americans held a favorable view to Christianity's role in society. They were saying, I like your Christ and I even like you Christians. But a little more than 10 years later, that view has drastically changed. In fact, the latest Barna research reveals that nearly two out of every five young non-Christians, that's 38%, express an impression of present-day Christianity. That, that they express a negative impression when they look at Christianity. You kind of ask yourself, what's up? There's another group who has done polls. In fact, they did a three-year study. David Kinneman and and a person named Gage Lyle, who in this study, they studied this group of people within our demographics of ages 16 to about age 30, about 24 million Americans in that age group. And they came to these conclusions after going through interviews and, and, and working in this for over three years. They've written a book. But they say there seems to be a reaction against the very, the very vocal Christianity that has a lot to say about a lot of things but has done very little to make the world better. That's their perception of you and me and other believers. Their experience has made them think that Christianity is all about rules and words and saying the right things and telling people you are doing the right things. Isn't that kind of interesting? This group from 16 to 30, millions of people look at the church and look at people who call themselves Christians and they say you're about rules you're a bunch of words you are about saying the right things and you're about telling people yeah you're doing the right thing and you're not in our research he continues we asked Christians and non-Christians what they thought about Christianity but when we asked non-Christians what they first thought of when they heard the word Christian or knew somebody who was a Christian the top things that came to mind were this. 91% said anti-homosexual. 87% said judgmental. 85% said hypocritical. And 78% said Christians are too political. Now you've got to wonder, I, I don't think, I don't think the, the non-Christian world has any problem knowing what we believe. Essentially, Christianity, as you listen to that and you read these polls, has become something very different than what I think Jesus ever intended. And what makes this worse is the fact that national polls also reveal that the morals of Christians are the same or worse than the morals of the world. In regard to divorce rate, pornography, greed, soft sins like cheating on tests or taxes and timesheets, attitudes, 
which are to mark Christian followers like those things of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and being faithful, dependable and all those kind of things. They're saying in many cases are absent. And Christians are found to be not too much different than those who are hating and unhappy and anxiety filled and impatient and rude and insensitive, selfishly ambitious. And they're kind of saying we don't see much of a difference. You know what? This was the same situation that Titus was facing in Crete. And this is the reason that Paul wrote this letter to the to Titus and to the churches in that area. They were asking that kind of question of what do you do in the lives of Christ followers are no different than the lives of those around you in the world. When you have a whole segment of people who are looking at it and saying, the impression we have about you is you're about a bunch of words and rules and you like to tell people what to do and not to. Like Paul said in Titus, the, the first chapter, the verse 12, at one point when he's trying to make his argument to the people in Crete, he says, even one of your own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true because someone of your own has said it. Well, the same could be said of us today. Even one of our own prophets, the pollster George Barna, has said, Christians are no different in their lifestyle and morals in the world around them. One of our own has said that. And so what do you do when 84% of those who are outside the faith, and they say they know at least one committed Christian, and yet just 15% of those thought the lifestyles of the Christ followers were significantly no different than anyone around them. Well, the message I believe Paul gave to Titus is as relevant today as it was back then. For the most part, those who claim to follow Jesus are not much different than those whom they lived and they rubbed shoulders with on a daily basis. There is a sense that we have to look at ourselves and we have to examine ourselves and, and say, where is the winsomeness of who Jesus is in us. What does that look like? What would it mean for people who, who live and work around you, the people that you are influencing in their lives, where they could be able to look at your life and, and they're able to say, not just 15%, but maybe 50% or more could say, there's something different about this person. There's something in their life that is different than what I understand and experience. And it's not about what you tell them and about what you preach at them or what words you give. But they look at it and they just see something different. What do we do? Well, we probably do the same thing that Paul does here to Titus with the people back then. He, he has two basic messages. It's a very simple message. And he says, teach what is good. What I want you to do is teach what is good. And the second message is then, and do good. Then go out and do it. With the purpose that... God's word wouldn't be a mind in that sense that that when God speaks and he says something, when he when he gives his word, we're able to match that up with the way a person lives, not so much with what they say, but with the way they live. And so the very first thing is teach what is good. There's a continual need for sound doctrine. We constantly need to go back to the base of sound being that which is healthy, something you can build your life on, something that, that as you build your life on it, it begins to change your life and transform your life. And so he says, you need to start with this. You need to teach that which is sound to Titus. And what did that mean when you think about it in this area called Crete? What was sound doctrine? What was he referring to? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, Paul makes it very clear right in that very introduction when before you open the scroll, you had these words up here. It says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect. And listen to this. And the knowledge of the truth 
that leads to godliness. He summed it up right in the very beginning. He said this, this understanding, this knowledge, this revelation, this relationship you have with God through Jesus Christ that allows for you to become more like God. That allows for you to live more like Jesus. Because that's where the full revelation of God is. If you look at the life of Jesus and you begin to see how his life was lived, somehow through time, over time, if we know Jesus and Jesus is operating in our life, there is this change, this transformation that takes place because the knowledge of what we know is true begins to penetrate into our life and make us a different person. In fact, the same sound doctrine Paul represents a little bit later in in this chapter. If you just go over to chapter 2. Or chapter 3. And you look at chapter 3, verse 3. He says, this is something you guys should all know. This is what your sound doctrine was built upon. He says, at one time, every one of us were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. He's speaking to the people in Crete here, those who call themselves Christ followers. But something happened. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared... He saved us. Not, he says, because of the righteous things we had done. But it was purely because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus our Savior. So that having been justified by what? His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And he goes on to say, this is a trustworthy saying. This is the sound doctrine, Titus, that I want you to teach. And I want you, as he goes on, to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves and listen to this, to doing what is good. This message comes up again and again. These things are excellent and are profitable for everyone. There is a simple truth. The simple truth is this, that Jesus saves. And Jesus saves us not on the basis of what we do. Jesus saves us because it's his love and his grace. The fact that in our state of need, in a time maybe in in brokenness, where you came to a place where you were tired of trying to run your life on your own. Anybody done that in your life? There was a time when you were, you were walking in, in your own life and maybe a crisis occurred or you came to a place where there was a frustration. There just wasn't what you thought was there. The things you were seeking after didn't provide and, and you call out to God. Or it could be, as in some cases, the guy who wrote Ken Blanchard, the one-minute manager, what happened in his life was someone came along beside him in the midst of his success and said, you know, success is great, but there's also something else. There's another person I know who, through their success, came to a point where they recognized when they saw the success. One person who had written this one book that had just become a mass seller. He was so humbled by what had happened. He knew there was something greater in him than himself that did it. Somehow, at some point in your life, he says, God comes along. He saves you. And out of his kindness and goodness, not on the basis of the things you're doing, but out of his love and his goodness, he comes into your life and you're humbled by it. You're broken. And you understand. Because he's been good to you. Your life is different. You begin to live and understand because he's been good to you. You are grateful for that. Now that gratefulness, even though you weren't good to him at times and you weren't even thinking about him, you begin to realize that his goodness took a hold of your life so that you begin to do the same kind of good things towards others. And this really stands in opposition to what the false teachers, the Judaizers, the Pharisees, or the circumcision group, which we talked about last week, what they were teaching. They kept teaching what was not sound doctrine. 
They kept teaching that what was happening in their lives, that if you would do these certain things and you would act and you do these good things and, and you would continue to live in that way, God would show you favor. And so what you need to do is go around and tell people to do these good things. And you live that way, then God shows you favor. And he said, it's not like that at all. It wasn't built on that. It wasn't based on that. See, when salvation is received in time over time, when grace is received again and again, day in, day out, moment by moment, it must lead to transformation. The goodness of God that you experience and feel, the love of God, when you begin to understand that God is crazy about you, even when you weren't crazy about him, has to change who you are. Right? I want you to think for a second. This would be a scary thing, but maybe ask your spouse or if you're single and someone you're really close to. If you have the guts to do this, ask them, am I a different person today than I was three years ago? Not that you aged or things like that. Okay? Not that you've gained weight. No, I'm not talking about that stuff. Am I more like Jesus today than I was three years ago? If that isn't happening, then this message must not be true. Because one who is a follower of Christ understands that it is out of the grace and goodness of God and it's out of that grace, that that platform that allows for his truth to come into your life so that you should be in a process constantly of being able to examine through your own prayer and time before the Lord, through the prayers and and, and lives of other people around you um, who love you. They should all be entering into your life in gracious and loving ways with the ability to speak truth about things about your life so that your life is changing. That's how the whole thing works. I love it in the word of God. John chapter one, verse 14 says Jesus came full of what? Grace and truth. Do you know there's no mistake? He didn't say truth and grace. He didn't come out and say, you know, point your finger, tell people what to do. A bunch of words like we've heard in the, what the polls are saying. And if you just say the right things, tell people to do the right thing, things, then maybe they can experience grace. It's the opposite. The opposite is this God who loves you is crazy about you because you know this God loves you and is crazy about you. You now are in a position where you go because you're so loved and you experience this love. You can look to God and say, now help me see the things in my life that I just want to deny that I don't want to see that I'm so insecure about that I go into defensive mode. God, help me be able to hear it through the books that I read, through the sermons that I hear, through the life of someone next to me who loves me and challenges me, even through my enemy. Help me grow in such a place that this grace begins to envelop me. I feel so much love from God and so much knowing that he's with me that I'm able to take, in a sense, there's almost like this kind of a plexiglass shield around you where you're able to take the words of people and not let them penetrate your heart, but you look at them and you say, God, if there's truth in this, help me see it because I want to grow and that only happens when we live in this grace and we live in this love and our life then begins to be transformed and we're not going out in the world necessarily telling people how to live and preaching this kind of message what we're doing is they're seeing this humble heart that's receiving grace that is full of love and out of that love comes love out of this experience comes goodness that has to be passed on to other people And that's what Paul is saying here. Teach what is good. And the goodness is this. God's crazy about you. And he's so crazy about you, he doesn't want you to remain the same. 
He wants you to grow. He wants you to mature. He wants you to have more every day the character of Christ so that as that character of Christ develops in you, you have the faith to receive the things around you that he can't give you unless that faith is there. So Paul says, Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to the next point, which is really pretty simple. But it has to happen on this platform of grace and goodness. You teach this sound doctrine, which is good, and then he says simply, do good. Over and over again, he says, do good. And Paul begins by sharing specific truth challenges that are applied to a number of, of, of groups in, 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 this, in this letter. He talks about older men, older women, and younger men. He doesn't say a thing about younger women because they obviously have their act together. So you, you're excused at this point. He says, do good, sow goodness, and you will reap goodness. Look at verse 2, if you would. He says, teach older men. And he goes into these specific qualities that they're to, to be taught. So I'm going to ask, is anyone over 50, if you'd just please stand, men. This message is to you. Okay. I want you to take it in. Okay, you can be seated. Everyone wants to sit down right away, I can tell. He says, be temperate. Basically, don't be given to excesses. He says, be worthy of respect, a sense of personal dignity, a, per a seriousness of purpose that invites honor. Not a sense of gloominess and, uh, you know, life is, uh, it's the sense of, of dignity, worthy of respect, self-control, the ability to regulate your emotions and your desires. In fact, it's really interesting. This call for self-control is repeated five times in this little letter. If you have your Bible open or if you want to write this down, five times <clears throat> it's expected of all groups. Overseers, it says in chapter 1, verse 8, to older men in chapter 2, verse 2, to older women in chapter 2, verse 5, to young men in chapter 2, verse 6. Believers are to be, in a sense, self-managers. They're to be the kind of people that they don't just are, they're not just given over to their desires. And when their appetites start to say, I want this, there is a, there is a check. There is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's the goodness of God that, that we know God loves us. That We don't have to have that. In a sense, when we listen to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God begins to regulate within us a muscle of self-control so that we begin to grow and become like Him. And, he, and this word self-control is really big in this culture because they, there wasn't self-control. In a moment, I'll just share what was happening in the culture. He says, sound in faith, love, and endurance. That's what he wants everyone to be, to be sound in faith, love, and endurance. Those of you who are older men, I hate to say that, but I'm 52, so I was standing. Literally, it's that same triad that you see Paul talk about in 1 Corinthians when he says there are three things that abide. What are they? Faith, hope, and love. It, they're the same things. He just reverses the order a little bit. Instead of saying hope, he says endurance. It's the person who has become mature. They have a healthy faith in the Lord. They're growing in their trust. Their life is changing. When they're at 60, they're still not as angry as they were at 30. Something's happening. That's changing. They exercise genuine love. There's a willingness to forgive. They're sacrificial. They look out for the interests of others, not just their own. They have an unswerving commitment to Christ, no matter what the problems they face. They display persistence and steadfastness in the face of trials and difficulties. And due to their confident expectation of God's goodness, they endure. And he says to you, be like that. Isn't it cool? He doesn't say go out and tell everyone to do that. Be like that. And then he turns to the older women. Look at verses 3 through 5. I'd like to ask all women who are over 50 to stand, but in an effort to do good. 
as Paul commands older men to do, and in an effort to be worthy of respect, I'm not going to ask women over 50 to stand. Instead, would all women who are still 39 years of age and, and counting? No, we won't do that. He says, teach older women to be reverent in the way they live. And he defines this with two negations and one positive statement. The two negations are this. Don't slander. Be careful what you say. Don't gossip or repeat things. Watch your tongue. And then he says, don't be addicted to too much wine. I'm not sure if Paul's saying it's okay to be addicted to a little wine, but I don't think that's the point. He says, don't be controlled by alcohol. Don't be controlled by gossip. Don't be controlled by alcohol, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. See, alcohol is just one of those things that all it's trying to do is it's trying to cover pain. It's trying to mask pain so you won't live in reality. You won't live in the truth. And if you are doing that, something's wrong. You need to allow the love of God and you need to allow the love of other people and so that you can look at the truth because the only way you're going to get to where you want to go is to go through the pain, not by avoiding it. That's why he says that. You see, one of the problems in that culture was self-indulgence. There was an ungodliness and, and there, the idea of letting your worldly passions go was something that was discussed in the philosophical schools of that day. In fact, the, some of the tutors that they were bringing in their house were teaching this kind of stuff and they were disrupting whole households, he says. And in Crete, some of the vices which were hold as virtues, one of them especially was self-indulgence. It had gained a, a, a sense and a measure of acceptability among many people. And so Paul is saying specifically to this situation, self-control is a big deal. That's why he says it so many times. And he's calling those who follow Christ into a new behavior, not self-indulgent expressions. So when it came to a person's appetite, in that culture there was one speed and it was full speed. Drink excessively, slander freely, express yourself unreservedly. Adultery in that culture actually was a social given the idea that we think is new today, friends with benefits. Anybody know what that means? I said that in the first culture and in the first service and no one looked at me and I said that must be a younger thing. Anyway, it was actually coined in Crete. We're not so novel. And due to self-indulgence, women were abandoning some vital responsibilities that they needed to be engaged in as wife and mothers. And, and that's why, as you go on here, it says, teach what is good, that they can train younger women in those good things. And one of the things that I mentioned in the first service, I'll mention again in this service, I've been really praying and asking God, how do we bring these, our generations together? I have this in my heart, and maybe God doesn't want to move this way, but it appears to me this is where I want to step out with you as a congregation. I want us to be multi-generational. I don't want us to divide up in traditional and contemporary. I don't want blended services. I want services that look to the Spirit of God and say, Spirit of God, how do you want this to be done each and every week when we do it? And I want us to work together, to love one another together, because in that, the power of God will be revealed. We need to have a church where there are people who are older and people who are younger rubbing shoulders with each other. It's not necessarily saying women go and have classes with these women. He's saying the way you live, through the life you live, and through the meals that you have, through the times that you're together, may it be that you model women this in such a way that those who are younger will live like that. And he says, teach what is good. They can train younger women. It wasn't Titus's job to do that. It was your job as models to begin to live in such a way that that happened. And that's why I don't think he says anything to the younger women. So love your husband and your children. Be self-controlled and pure. Be busy at home, not in all these other places. Because when the, the gospel of, of, of Christ came to these communities in many different places where it came, Jesus so exalted the position of women 
Paul so exalted the position of women that there was almost a sense of we can do whatever we want. And he's saying, no, wait a second. You still have some responsibilities. So be self-controlled and pure, busy at home. Be kind. Be subject to your husbands in this sense. He's, it's the same way that it was used in chapter 1, verse 7 to an overseer. He says, don't be overbearing. Don't be so self-willed that you're always wanting your way and getting your way. Submit yourselves to one another, he says in Ephesians. And then he says, teach young men. I love this. You know what he says to young men? One thing. Whatever young man needs here, be self-controlled. That's it. And then he says to Titus, for you, in every way and in everything, set then an example by doing, what does he say? By doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that no, those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Wouldn't it be cool if those who are 16 to 30 had nothing bad to say about us? He goes on, he tells women, be reverent and be pure and kind subjects so that no one will malign the word of God and say that word doesn't have power. Because all you have to do is look at their life. It doesn't seem to do a thing. So why in the world do you spend this time going to church, reading the Bible, doing this kind of stuff? It's got to be different. This is so important, folks. This is so critical to the, the age that we're in right now. He says, teach and do these things. And they were written for a specific context in Crete. They were dealing with things of self-indulgence. I want you to consider for a moment, to ask yourself this question. What would it mean for you to live in the grace and love of God that, has, that you felt His love and His goodness? And what would it mean for that goodness to pass through you into someone else's life? This week, wherever it may be. What does it mean for you to step out of your comfort zone and to actually do good? In the context of where you live... And where you have influence, whether it's in the home or the school or at work or in government or wherever it may be, what does it mean for you to do something that looks good in that place that's different? I'm not saying weird. I just really want you to think and pray about that. I want you to ask yourself, what can I do consistently that's good? Whether it's a note that's sent, or maybe it's something you need to say to someone, or maybe it's just something that you, you just do differently by showing up on time or your attitudes. If I don't know, but this is, this is the primary responsibility folks. There's not a whole lot of things in the Bible that says go out and share your faith with people. I'm not saying you don't. I'm just saying we're in an age where they look at our words and they look at all that we're doing and they say, you know what? Show me first your life. And we live in an age where the message of Titus is the most essential message that the church I believe needs to hear today. Again, back to the polls. What do we do when people outside the faith describe Christians as living in their own world using special words or phrases that no one else can understand? And I just say, when a church, when people come in here, do they understand even what we're talking about? Do we use words that just put them outside of what we're talking about? Just simple things, like instead of saying something's a narthex, we call it a lobby, and people go, oh yeah, I know where to go now. When one in five non-Christians perceive Christian churches as loving environments, places where people are unconditionally loved and accepted, what do we do when only one in five see the church that way? Well, what we do is simply this. We do good. We talk less, folks, and we do more. We quit preaching about Jesus, but we be Jesus to those we're inclined to preach to. 
They know what we believe. This was really the secret of the first century church. And this was the reason it spread so quickly. Just give me a few more minutes and I'll close. I I want you to hear how the first century church impacted its world. Robert Lewis, in the book called The Church of Irresistible Influence, writes this. I saw that more preaching is not the answer to today's spiritual hunger. Neither is the writing of more books, the hosting of more conferences, better technology or special effects. For the most part, we're talking to ourselves. We don't need to be slicker or trendier to draw people into our community to Christ, but we need to be better and holier. We don't need to invest time and money into more events, but reinvest it into equipping our people to live with genuinely good lives. We don't need to be more religious. We need to be more connected to people all around us through good and loving lives. The same goodness God has shown to us, we need to show to others. He writes, it's estimated that the early church grew at an astounding 40% growth rate per decade. 40% per decade. All historians of the early church link this explosion of early Christianity to one simple fact. It's they were people who did good. Michael Green writes, the link between holy living and effective evangelism can hardly be made more apparent. In particular, Christians stood out for its chastity, their hatred of cruelty, their civil obedience, their civility. They refused to have anything to do with idolatry and its byproducts. Such lives made a great impact. Even the heathen opponents of Christianity admitted as much. He goes on to write, it's difficult to overestimate this moral emphasis in the growth of second century Christianity. Princeton University sociologist Rodney Stark observes in his book, The Rise of Christianity. And he notes the extraordinary expansion of Christianity in the first and second centuries. Stark was puzzled. This Princeton University sociology. He was puzzled at how a marginalized, persecuted, often uneducated group of people were not only able to survive, but thrive. He concludes that a key reason was their willingness to sacrifice themselves out of love for each other and for their world. This sacrifice, he said, as he studied this, released an explosion of light and heat the world has never known. Stark shows the powerful proof Christians offered during the two great plagues that swept the Roman Empire in the years 80, 165, and 251. Those both killed about a third of the population. As Stark studied this, and he writes, the willingness of Christians to care for others was put on dramatic display. Pagans tried to avoid all contact with the afflicted, often casting the still living into gutters. Christians, on the other hand, nursed the sick, and even though some, while doing it, died. Christians were also visible and valuable during frequent natural and social disasters afflicting the Greco-Roman world. Earthquakes, famines, floods, riots, civil wars and invasions. Even in the healthier time, the pagan emperor Julian noted that the followers of the way, which is what Christianity was called back then, Julian noted that the followers of the way support not only their poor, but ours as well. And then historian Will Durant makes this additional observation. Never has the world seen such a dispensation of alms. This is giving of of people's gifts to people as was now organized by the church. She helped widows, orphans, the sick, prisoners, victims of natural catastrophes. And she frequently intervened to protect the lower orders from exploitation or excessive taxation. In many cases, priests gave all their poverty to the poor and devoted fortunes to charitable work. And the church, her rich laymen, formed public hospitals on a scale never known. 
And pagans admired, he writes, the steadfastness of Christians in caring for the sick in cities stricken with famine or pestilence. They were overwhelmed. Not by a bunch of preachers and teachers or people going out telling people words. They were overwhelmed by people who did good. It's the easiest and most accessible way for every person in this place to witness. No one can ever walk out of here and say, well, I don't know. I can't evangelize. I can't. I'm not like the pastor. You know what? You're probably better than me. All you have to do is say, God, if there's some needs around me, how do you want me to meet those the way you met them in me? I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray. Father, this whole thing of living with you is really incredibly simple. It just means that we, with humble hearts, open ourselves to you and and recognize that you love us and deeply, deeply want to give us your best. So that God, through us, we can't do anything but turn around and give our best and to do good to others. So God, I pray right now as people are just reflecting on this, that God, you would place in people's hearts and minds, even at this moment or throughout this week and the weeks to come, what you want them to do as they open their eyes to the needs of others. Spirit of God, move in the hearts of people. Become as you are a counselor and counsel us into places where we will do good. And we give this all to you in Christ's name.